0: This is Science Friday. I'm Kathleen Davis. And
1: I'm Ira Flato. And now it's time to talk aliens. Ah, Creatures from another planet are so part of our culture. I love that theremin music from the day the Earth stood still. It's a great movie. And, you know, they appear everywhere, aliens in movies, books, comics, you name it. And actually, words like UFOs or the modern government phrasing UAPs, unexplained aerial, aerial phenomena. I'm still not used to that phraseology. They're both science and science fiction, aren't they, Kathleen?
0: Yeah. And we have been fascinated with the question of alien life being somewhere out in the stars for decades, I mean, even centuries. And so now with congressional hearings into Navy pilots, sightings of strange things, The search for intelligent life is getting a more serious treatment. And so how do we, as a culture, think about alien life with an open mind? Yes.
1: And joining us to talk about the search for intelligent life and how we might find signs of it is Dr. Adam Frank, professor of astrophysics at the University of Rochester, author of The Little Book of Aliens. He joins us from WXXI in Rochester, New York. Welcome to Science Friday. Oh, thank you, Ira. Thank you for having me on. Nice to have you. Let's let's get right to this flurry of attention that we mentioned to this topic in recent years with the release of those famous videos from the Pentagon. What is your take on those?
2: Yeah, well, you know, what's interesting about that part of the story is how it also rides on what's happening in astrophysics. And I think they're actually related because we're getting so close to actually getting data about from astronomy about life in the universe, that I think the UFO and UAP stuff is sort of picking up on that. Um, you know, in the book, I try. I know people are interested in this, so about a third of the book is about UFOs and UAPs. And what happened in 2017 was the New York Times published an article, front page article, about this Pentagon program that was looking at UFOs or what they we're calling unidentified aerial phenomena. And it was accompanied by these three videos, which have been replayed endlessly, uh, taken by Navy pilots. And that was the beginning of of sort of this flurry of new activity where people were recognizing that the government had an interest in this. The government was admitting that there was unidentified stuff that they were seeing. And of course, if you were into UFOs, you're like, my God, this is it, finally. And if you're skeptical, like I am, you're still like, "Okay, um, this is interesting. Interesting. We should study it. But there's still no data even close to associating any of this with, uh, you know, anything right. non-human.
0: We are taking calls this hour. Our number is 844-724-8255. That's 844-SY-TALK. So what would it take to actually be proof aside from an alien, you know, appearing and telling us to, you know, take him to our leader?
2: Right. And that's, you know, after 30 years of doing all different kinds of astronomy, you know, everything from star formation to um, how stars like the sun die. One of the reasons I did this book is because I myself have started doing astrobiology, you know, over the last um, 10, 15 years. And we are now at the point when it comes to getting proof that. It's going to be our telescopes. It's going to be things like the James Webb Space Telescope, and in particular, the telescopes which are going to come after it, the ones we're designing now, where we are going to have data. I can't tell you what it's going to say, but actual data rather than just yelling at each other about our opinions (laughs) relevant to this question of is there life, alien life? where we should find it on alien planets. And that's the game changer. That's why mm. I wrote the book. I wanted people to understand how after after literally millennia of human beings arguing about this, we're finally in the position to get real hard data about whether or not we're the only life in the entire universe.
0: So, one thing that I love in your book is that you say that there's one big flaw in this argument of of UFOs, you know, those traditional flying saucers being alien visitors, and you say You know, if aliens were here and they wanted to hide, that would be a pretty bad way to do it, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. I call this the high beam argument, you know, which people are always saying, oh, I saw these lights in the sky and they were moving in, in incredible ways. And of course, these aliens never just land on the White House lawn and say, yo, we're here. What's up? So, you know, they're trying <laughs> they're doing to the not be seen and they're <laughs> terrible at it, which for advanced, supposedly advanced technological creatures, you know, are they sending us their teenagers who are like can't find the cloaking device button?
1: Yeah, let, let's. Yeah, of course, you can imagine we have a lot of listeners who want to get in on the conversation. A number eight four four seven two four eight two five five. Let's go to Chicago and Kevin. Hi, welcome to Science Friday. Hello, how are you? Hi there. Go ahead.
3: Well, you know what? I was just. Um, first of all, this has always intrigued me, This subject, and um, I just feel that we can't be the only so-called intelligent race in the universe. There has got to be something, somebody else out there, all those billions and trillions, I mean, out there in the universe. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And in the event event that I'm wrong, would it be a good idea for us to try to, you know, find E.T., whoever E.T. might be? Good question. You know, depending on their mindset, I mean, how would they view us? And you know what? A reason they probably don't land on the White House lawn is because they see how we are with each other. <laughs> okay, let me get an answer.
1: That's a good point. How do you answer that?
2: Adam. Well, there's a couple parts here. Um, raised really good questions. The first one is whether what are the odds that we are the only time in the history of the universe that an intel or any kind of life, but certainly intelligent life, formed. And um, Woody Sullivan and I did a paper on this in 2016. And what we just did is we used the data that existed about exoplanets because we have found now that the universe is teeming with planets. We didn't know that when I was a graduate student. Yeah. And so what we figured out that was there are 10 billion trillion planets in the right place for life to form, what are called habitable zone planets. So in order for us to be the only time... That life has ever formed, then you know it must have mean that all of the the experiments that nature was running with those habitable zone planets failed. If you think of them as being experiments, and yeah, I think I agree that uh, it's up to the pessimists to tell me why it would happen here and it didn't, and why the experiment succeeded here and failed in those other ten billion trillion planets. That's not a proof by any stretch of the imagination, but it does sort of I think shift. The, who has to do the the argument about life being common or uncommon? So that's the first part.
0: So, the second oh, – go sorry. ahead. I'm sorry. Well, are you talking about the Drake equation here?
2: Well, that's what we did. We modified the Drake equation to take into account – like when Drake wrote his equation in 1961 – nobody knew whether there were any planets other than the eight in our solar system that existed. It was possible that planets were really rare. And I try to cover this, unpack this in the book so people can see how the uh, evolution of our thinking was. So when I was a graduate student in 1986, it was entirely possible that planets were just very, very, very rare, which meant life was very, very rare. And then in 1995, we discovered our first exoplanet. And now we know that every star in the sky... Every star you see in the sky, pretty much, has a family of worlds. And if you count up five of those stars, one of them is going to have a planet in the habitable zone, the Goldilocks zone, where liquid water can exist. And we think that's what's important for Mm. life. So, so much change in just the last 20 or 30 years. The game has changed. And that's why I want people to understand that's one of the reasons why we're so close to getting real data about the possibility of life in the
1: universe. So in your book, you called The, the Drake Equation, and I'll quote it, uh, an epoch-making milestone it will be remembered as the moment when it all began. Is it that important? Yes, it is. Because what, what happened was, is that for
2: centuries, like I said, you can see the ancient Greeks yelling at each other about whether life existed. And we just didn't have a good way of thinking, yeah. even scientifically, about the problem. And it was really this amazing decade of you know, 1950 to 1960 that all the seminal work happens the fermi paradox is sort of first formulated um drake carries out his first experiment he you know he does project ozma and looks for signals of inter- of of extraterrestrial intelligence which was really the first ever astrobiology experiment at all the first time anybody looked for any kind of life in the universe um and then this what that equation did when he wrote that equation which was really the agenda for the first SETI meeting ever held. Um, he, he took this problem that people couldn't even really figure out how to think about, and he parsed it into seven sub-problems. Right? The, the, the main problem is how many intelligent civilizations are there in the galaxy that we could talk to. And he broke that problem up into seven sub-problems, each of which yeah. could be studied independently yeah. and, and made progress I, on. I
1: let's, let's go to the phones, uh, to uh, Alex in Martha's Vineyard. Hi, Alex. Hi. Hi there, go ahead.
3: Sorry, I thought I just got disconnected for a second. Yeah, I was calling in to mention I, I'm an anthropologist who studied the UFO topic and aliens and such for maybe uh, three decades now. It's always a little disconcerting to me to hear the topic of UFOs and aliens get conflated together. And of course, I do know why. It's, it is the most popular layman's explanation for the UFO phenomenon, but I tend to think that it might actually throw us off the scent scientifically when we, uh, when we do that, when we say these these you know, interesting phenomena we see in our terrestrial skies, and we jump to the conclusion of aliens when there's absolutely no proof of that. Hmm.
2: Yeah, I agree. I agree completely that they are separate things. And it's, you know, but of course the interest, you know, often when I'm asked to do something on CNN or MSNBC about this topic, it's because people are making that conflation. Oh, you know, the latest UFO video. And then it's like, what does this have to do with aliens? And I always have to explain that there's just no solid data. There's no data of the kind I would be required to provide if I said I found alien life on an alien planet that links UFOs to anything non-human.
0: So have you seen any compelling evidence in your opinion that makes you think that maybe we have encountered some sort of alien technology that that we've maybe been visited in our solar system? This makes me think of of Oumuamua, uh, which I know some astronomers have strong feelings about.
2: Yeah, yeah. So the answer is no. There's just nothing. Because, I mean, I wish that would be the most exciting thing ever. You know, I'm not against it. And in the book, I argue uh, that, look, let's do a transparent open scientific investigation of UFOs and UAPs and see where it leads. But as of right now, there is just nothing to indicate that we've been visited by anything, by anybody. Um, And, you know, so a muamua, you bring up a muamua, which was exciting on its own because it was the first interstellar comet or interstellar interloper, the first time we saw something, you know, entering Mm -hmm. the solar system from outside. And, of course, Avi Loeb argued that uh, it might be a... um, a a solar sail a a piece of technology but i don't think anybody else really believes that and i'm one of those i think you know i understand why he proposed it but then i think he was just hanging on too hard to the conclusion (laughs) when other people came up with more reasonable explanations
1: all right let's go to uh, kyla in portland oregon hi welcome to science friday hi there Hi. go ahead
4: hey hi um um, yeah, so I guess the the last question just kind of uh, <laughs> uh, sheds a little light on this. I know you're talking about UAPs and UFOs, but um, but my question was more, I guess, about our depiction of uh, of alien life forms um, in sort of our popular culture, and just why we always have this notion that they are they're humanoid at all. Why they um, resemble humans? Why they have two arms, two legs, a torso, a head? Why they look like us, and why not something? Completely out there, like why a UAP couldn't be an alien life form or something.
1: Like in Nope, um, like in the movie yeah. Nope. Yeah. yeah,
4: exactly. That's that's what I brought up in my original call. Was Nope? That was like one of the most um, like original depictions of an alien that I would seen recently, and it just got me thinking. Like, that they could be any size, anything. So small, yeah. huge. Yeah. So anyway, that just is a thought that it has been occurring to me lately.
1: Yeah. So. Good, good question. Thanks for that that call. And and in fact. It, Uh, When people talk about alien life, the phrase that almost always comes up is is flying saucer. But you tell a great story in, in your book about how that term came to be. It was a misnomer.
2: It was the greatest misquote in journalistic history. (laughs) Yeah, so it was uh, Kenneth Arnold was the first guy who you know uh, first the story his story was the first big uh, UFO story, and he was flying um, uh, his plane his private plane uh, in Washington um, State. It was 1947, and he sees nine objects moving the way he described it as being like the tail of a Chinese kite. And he landed, and he told people about it, and then some reporters came and talked to him. And what happens? He what he said he saw were things that looked like sort of crescent shapes, kind of like the bat wing uh, ninja star things that you know Batman throws around. They were crescents. But the reporter got it wrong and said he saw a flying saucer, a supersonic flying saucer. And within six months, there were eight hundred sightings of. Flying saucers, <laughs> even though he never saw a flying saucer, so that really shows you sort of the power of narrative and story uh, associated that that one of the p- aspects I think of you understanding UFOs is a phenomena.
0: Hmm. But I mean, to the caller's question, when you know this pervasive idea of what an alien looks like that we have in our culture, you know, standing on two legs, has arms, right. has legs. I mean, do you think that's just persisted because? We we know what we know, and uh, we're not using our imaginations.
2: Uh, I think it's because of low budgets on <laughs> science fiction <laughs> films. You know, it's a lot easier to slap some antenna on some guy's head and call it an alien. You know, one of the most fun parts of the book was when I sort of went did a deep dive into evolutionary theory and asked, like, well, what might – what do we know about Darwinian evolution uh, that will tell us where, how life can uh, evolve? And it turns out that, yes, yeah, some things – there's what's called convergence in evolution, that evolution will uh, use the same – Tricks to solve similar problems of like you know how to walk around on an air-solid interface. So you might expect legs and you might expect heads, um, but you never you're never going to get the same combination that you got here. There's also evolution is about accidents, just as importantly, contingency. So we should expect with aliens, we should expect to be surprised and probably grossed out a little bit. <laughs> um, it's not going to look anything that we're, we're probably the only humanoids in the galaxy, if not the universe.
0: Maybe shift our thinking more to the blob than yes, uh, the greys. Yes, blobs are
2: good. Yes. <laughs> goo. I'm into goo. <laughs>
1: into, goo. <laughs> into goo. Primordial goo or just goo in general?
2: All kinds of goo. I think, you know, I mean general, like you look at life on Earth, if water is really important for life or any kind of solvent, then you should sort of expect things to be a and, you know, the idea of blobs or goo, that could be something that's used quite a bit, uh, you know, as as life's architecture.
1: Yeah, well, they talk about having to have a precision grip to make tools and things. So the goo would have to find a way to do that. And <laughs> we're going to talk more, but we have to take a break. We're going to talk uh, with uh, Adam Frank more about uh, his book, The Little Book of Aliens. And, and Adam, when we come back... I want to talk about where you think we could search for aliens in our universe, and especially about the whole idea of uh, these exoplanets may yes. have, right? And yes. what what do you look for on an exoplanet to find life? So this is really cool stuff. Our number, 844-724-8255. 844-SciTalk. You can also tweet us at SciFry. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I am Ira Plato.
0: And I'm Kathleen Davis. We're talking this hour about alien life, what it might be, where it might be, and how it's entered our culture with our guest, Dr. Adam Frank, author of The Little Book of Aliens. So let's talk about exoplanets, because your idea is that, you know, better than looking for alien life on our planet, we should start looking for it on other planets. And a good candidate for that could be exoplanets, right?
2: Yes, yes. The, the, you know, I talk about in the book about these three revolutions that have happened in astrobiology that now make it a really going concern that NASA is all in on. And the first of that was the discovery the, of exoplanets, that the universe is teeming with worlds.
1: And how would, what would we look for? What would be the signs we would look for? You talk about some uh, Dysonian things like uh, circulating giant spheres. With, uh, satellites around planets, right, or, or electrical solar panels or even just the, ex- the biology of what's going on in the atmosphere.
2: Yeah, that's really the exciting thing. So, what we what was not possible beforehand, and is now finally possible, is that when we detect exoplanets, one of the main ways we do it is when the planet passes in front of the star. We call that a transit. It's like a little eclipse. And if the planet has an atmosphere, then some of the starlight passes through the atmosphere, leaves a uh, a, it gets a chemical fingerprint of what is in the atmosphere. So we can, you know, even if it's 40 light years away, we can tell what's in the atmosphere. And so that means we can tell whether there are chemicals in the atmosphere that only life Would put there. So, for example, oxygen, you know, take a deep breath. The oxygen in Earth's atmosphere is only there because of life. If life went away within, you know, not too long a time, all that oxygen would react with the rocks and disappear. So, oxygen and particularly methane, if you found them both, that would be a strong indicator of an alien biosphere. So, those were, Mm. so the oxygen is a biosignature. Likewise, there are techno signatures, signatures of technology, things like chlorofluorocarbons. Our group, I'm the principal investigator of NASA's first grant to study these techno signatures in planetary exoplanet atmospheres. And we showed that chlorofluorocarbons are something that that even the JWST could find. Hmm. So um, uh, that's an example of a techno signature. City lights, we would be able to detect city lights, artificial illumination on a uh, a distant planet, or solar panels, if there was a large scale use of solar panels. So Uh all the science is just happening right now. But it shows you that finally, we're ready now to start getting data that will show whether there's life or even intelligent life on other worlds.
0: We have a question from Steve on Twitter. On X, I should say. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Steve says, isn't it possible that there are other life forms in the universe that aren't carbon-based like us humans? Therefore, they wouldn't necessarily need to live on a planet located within the Goldilocks zone. What do you think of that?
1: Yeah, we've had Uh a few of those questions coming in. Lots of people asking that same question. Well, that's a great question, and it really shows you how mature this field has gotten.
2: Because, again, when I was a graduate student, nobody really was studying life in the universe. Mm -hmm. There was no way to do it. It was still kind of, there was what we called the giggle factor associated with it. But now NASA's been funding this for over 30 years or at least 20 years. And so the whole field has had a chance to mature so that now we are agnostic. We're learning how to do agnostic astrobiology where we're not saying, oh, it's carbon based or it's molecular chemistry, biochemistry looks anything like ours. And we're looking for much more general ways of thinking about what life is and what life does. So, for example, uh, we don't really need it to be carbon based. Um, We could be silicon based uh, and we can figure out what the properties say with the atmospheres. I was talking about atmospheric biosignatures. You don't have to necessarily look for something associated with carbon, you could just look at the, the, the chemical reaction network, uh, which... If, it's a, if that network, which is basically which chemicals react with other chemicals, life makes very different chemical reaction networks than non-life. And you should be able to tell that, whether it's carbon-based or silicon-based or whatever. So the idea of agnosticism is really the frontiers of astrobiology
1: right now. And we're really making progress with that. Uh-huh. Let's go to, the, go to the phone. So we've lit up the phone. <laughs> Let's go to Kim and is it uh, Tallahatchie, California? Or give that to me correctly. Well, my name is Ken. Uh, Say, get the whole thing wrong.
3: (laughs) And the the town is much harder to pronounce than that. It's Tehachapi.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Ken and Tehachapi. Sorry. Go ahead.
3: Well, I just thought you might be interested to know that I'm so old that when I did my master's thesis, it was about 50 years ago, and my field was not in science. My field is international uh, relations, political science. So, I had a bit of a hard time talking to my professors into <laughs> addressing this issue because they were kind of the, they were, they were absolutely Im- Im- immersed in the gig as you call it, the giggle, the giggle factor. But I was able to finally persuade them. And so I wrote the paper on the inter, as of 1970, the international implications of <laughs> contact with extraterrestrial wow. intelligence.
1: And what, did you have a conclusion? In your paper? I did. I did. What was it?
3: And of course, I had
1: to really get into all the science
3: because uh, the, the perceived contact might be a perceived malevolent, might be perceived benevolent, or perceived we don't have a clue. And it, it might be just, you know, contact with a little blob of bacteria. So my professors wanted, I think they wanted They wanted the interesting factor. So they wanted to have a perceived probably malevolent and and contact on our planet.
1: All right. right. I can't stop you. I'm going to stop you there because uh, thanks for that call because we have other of callers with a similar vein. Uh, somebody saying that Stephen Hawking said if, if uh, we hear a signal from ET out there, we shouldn't answer it. Because it <laughs> could be waiting, you know, to serve man, as the old Twilight oh, Zone said. I love said. that.
2: Best episode ever.
1: <laughs> so what is your answer to that? What, what do you think the, what, the ramifications of not just finding intelligent life, but any kind of life? I think uh, it'll be the
2: – and this is the sort of – I would kind of wrap the book up because I really wanted to, uh, people to understand. I don't think it matters whether it's intelligence or not. not Finding any kind of life would be the most significant scientific discovery in the history of humanity. And the reason for that is life is weird, right? There, we know a lot about, you know, what physics does. It makes black holes and it makes comets and it makes planets. But life is unlike any other system because it creates, it evolves, it innovates. And as of right now, it's possible that this incredible innovative capacity was a one-off. Like, we're the only time in the entire history of the cosmos that it happened. If we find just one other example, then really there's more examples. And probably life is common. And that means all bets are off because life can innovate because it can go past itself. Like what life can do and, and we're part of it becomes almost, you know, sort of entirely, infinitely open ended. And it would show that we are part of a, of, of a cosmic community of life. And I think it would really mm. force us to reevaluate how we see ourselves and how we see our place in the universe. And just to make the point about why it's important, think about the Copernican Revolution which was just, you know, a scientific discovery that, oh, hey, the Earth goes around the the sun, not the other way around. That was implicated in the Renaissance, in the Enlightenment, in the Protestant Reformation. It was just an astronomical idea, but it actually helped reshape world politics.
0: Do you still find that there are barriers for astrobiology to be taken seriously within the greater scientific community? You know, despite the fact that it would be just incredible if we did find evidence of life elsewhere
2: when it comes to what i call dumb life and i mean no disrespect but when it comes to biospheres and uh, microbial life no i mean you know nasa nasa's next giant telescope the thing that's going to replace the jwst its name is the habitable world's observatory right so that shows Mm. you that we are all in the entire astronomical community is saying this is the number one problem for astrophysics. When it comes to intelligent life, I still find my colleagues and I on this NASA grant still find that we have to, especially sometimes for older scientists, there's still that bias. There's still that giggle factor, but it's, it's slowly dying away. Mm -hmm. The fact that we got this grant, which really NASA, NASA got so burned by Congress for doing any kind of SETI work back in the eighties that they were kind of like, eh, we're not going to do this. Um, the fact that we even got this grant shows
1: that the tide is turning. Okay. Let's go to, uh, see how many calls I can get in. Uh, Colleen in Pensacola. Hi, welcome to Science Friday. Hi, thank you. Go ahead.
4: I, I have a question based on the conversation. I have totally enjoyed this program. Um, if I understand proof, but what do you say to the people who say they have been abducted and have drawn pictures of the people of the beings that have taken them? Um, I mean, are they? delusional or how do you how does the author feel about this
2: good question well you know i would never tell somebody that they didn't see something they said they saw because i wasn't there right but science is about public knowledge not private experience right and and so if we if we want to have public knowledge something that we can all agree on then we need the same kind of standards of evidence that we use to, say, make our cell phones, right? The reasons these cell phones work and are not just like a brick that we hold in our hand is because of these r- incredibly rigorous standards of evidence that scientists have. Scientists are so mean to each other about their evidence. Hmm. But, but that's what's required for us to be able to say that, that as a community – that we know something. And so, you know, for the people who have those experiences, there's nothing I can say, but I can't do any science with it. And that's really the question.
0: One of the famous lines from the X-Files TV show was, I want to believe. Do you think we as a culture want to believe that we're not alone? I do.
2: I do because we we are the cosmic lonely hearts. It is very strange to be a human being and have this capacity to know what the stars are, to know how large the universe is and then have no one to talk to about it, right? I mean, mm. human beings first of all were terrible to each other, right? And we got the we have this thing like does anybody do better? Um and and so there's just, we have all of these deep questions about ourselves and we don't have anyone to talk to. So I think naturally we look to the stars and now that we know the stars are just like the sun and that there's planets all over the place, we want to know what yeah. other stories yeah. ha- the universe has written with creatures like us.
1: Knowing who to talk to, that's the subject of Alex in New York. Uh, welcome to Science Friday. <laughs> yeah, hi there. Um, so my question
3: is basically, we live in a... You know, alternate facts world where not you know, very—it's hard for anyone to agree on anything from elections to climate change. So it's not clear to me that if extraterrestrial life was found, everybody would agree that it was. Great question. Of the aliens, from this perspective, the aliens—who do you pick as your human spokesperson to convince the most people?
1: You know, that's like you Is know, Oprah? Yeah.
3: Is it Lionel Messi?
1: Dwayne the Rock Johnson.
3: Uh, and, uh, I've always wanted to say this, so
1: I'll take my answer up the air. Yeah, you, you, got, you got the ability to say that now. That's what, that's what happened uh, you know, in science fiction movies. I go, take me to your leader, right? Right. Uh, uh, so who, is there any one person who would be good? That's a yeah, fun Dwayne question. Yeah, Dwayne the Rock
2: Johnson. Because? That's, that's who I vote for.
1: <laughs> <laughs> He'd be great. I mean, you know, he's a nice guy. He's huge.
2: You know, I mean, I think that would be the right representative.
1: All right, let me ask you this question. I'm going to give you the... Blank checkbook question I give a lot of my experts who come on, and that is you're talking about investigating, looking for signs of life, let's say, in the exoplanet. You talked about new methodologies that are coming on, a new telescope. What tool, besides that telescope, could you love to have if you had an un- unbelievable amount of money to spend on it?
2: Well, more than one telescope in more than one wavelength. I'd probably want, you know, a bunch of those telescopes that are configured in different ways. to You know, because this is the problem with building a telescope like this. You have to sort of, you know, you have to look at all the possibilities and then somehow, you know, roll the dice on the best bet. So if I had lots more money, I'd be able to sort of uh, put my cards down on a lot of different bets. I would also want probes in the solar system. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting places mm. in the solar system, the ocean moons of right. the giant planets um you know like for example titan is a really interesting place i'd love to have boots on mars looking for either existent microbial life or fossil microbial life so there is just so much that we could be doing and we're just you know we're getting even though it's you know a t- space mm-hmm. telescopes a lot of money it's still a mm-hmm. little dribble compared to what we could be doing
0: but how do you cope with just how vast space is i mean even if we did find a spot that had some sort of techno signature from another place i i mean i i it would basically be impossible for the technology that we know about to get in contact with them I mean, let alone visit, right?
2: Well, I think, you know, imagine that we do, let's say we find a techno signature on a a star, a planet orbiting a star 10 light years away. I think what would happen is we'd then build the next biggest telescope to get even a better view and et cetera, and we keep doing that. And at some point we'd send probes and the probe might, if it's traveling at, if we could get something up to half the speed of light, it would take 20 years to get there and 20 years to beam back. But it shows you that we gotta be in this for the long game. I think this would just be the beginning. It wouldn't be the end of it story, it would be the beginning of a long, long story.
1: Is it, Are we in it for the long game? Is there enough money, interest to be in it for the long game? Have things changed now? I think so. I mean, the, the
2: fact that the next JWST is the habitable world's observatory shows that we're willing to put enormous resources into it. And if we find something, then I think really then all bets are off. You're going to see an enormous amount of funding poured mm. into that if we get our first good bio or techno yeah. signature.
1: You like to quote Carl Sagan in your book a lot. I do, especially about evidence, right? Extraordinary. That extraordinary
2: evidence requires extraordinary, or extraordinary claims requires extraordinary evidence. Absolutely, still true. Absolutely.
1: And what kind of evidence would that be? Extraordinary. I only um, got about a minute left, but what, what that kind of evidence like would you
2: need? Uh, we would need, uh, for example, if we found uh, uh, chlorofluorocarbons in an alien atmosphere, that would be it. There, you can't make chlorofluorocarbons unless you have industry. So I that right it. there would tell you that planet has an industrial, uh, you know, uh, intelligent civilization.
1: That's terrific. It's a terrific book. The, uh, my guest is Dr. Adam Frank. He's the Gowan Professor of Astrophysics at the University of Rochester, author of The Little Book of Aliens. It's a great book, Frank, uh, uh, Dr. Frank. It's, it's just thank like you. well, well, well written. I recommend it to everybody. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, and, thank you. This was so much fun. And we have an excerpt of the book on our website at sciencefriday.com aliens.